We're going to turn now to our scripture reading this morning. It comes from 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings 5. Before we read that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that every word you use is useful for teaching. And so as we come to you, the one who speaks and things come into being, we pray that you would speak to us and bring into our hearts conviction or encouragement, whatever our need may be. We pray that your Spirit would dwell in us, the same Spirit who breathed out these words. You may use them for our benefit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 5, we'll start in the first verse. We'll read to the 18th verse, which is the last verse. When Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent his envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build the temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build the temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. So give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My men will work with yours, and I will pay you for your men whatever wages you set. I know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, I have received the message you sent me and will do all you want in providing the cedar and pine logs. My men will haul them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you specify. There I will separate them, and you can take them away. And you are to grant my wish by providing food for my royal household. In this way, Hiram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedar and pine logs he wanted, and Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household in addition to 20,000 baths of pressed olive oil. Solomon continued to do this for Hiram year after year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom, just as he had promised him. There were peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and two of them made a treaty. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workmen. At the king's command, they removed from the quarry large blocks of quality stone to provide a foundation of dressed stone for the temple. The craftsmen of Solomon and Hiram and the men of Gibal cut and prepared the timber and stone for the building of the temple. It's good for us to ask ourselves at different times what it is that motivates us, what it is that drives us, what it is 
that moves us. Because as creatures created with a will, there is always going to be something which motivates us. Now, sometimes that something is very simple. Sometimes it's as simple as, I'm hungry, so I eat, or I'm thirsty, so I drink, or I'm tired, and so I sleep. But there are other times in which our motivations are more complex, in which things beyond just simple instinct motivate us. Some of us, particularly in the age of social media, are motivated by the applause of others. We do and say things, perhaps we post things in order that other may, others may see us and approve of us, or perhaps even literally like us. We desire the praise of other people, and so we act out of a desire to be praised by other people. Others of us might be motivated by fear. This can be related to the last thing. We are afraid of what others will think of us. We're afraid of what happens if I fail. What happens if I get hurt? What might other people say about me? Others of us are motivated by attraction. We want that certain handsome young man or that certain beautiful young woman to notice us, and so we put ourselves in the right place at the right time. We say the right things. We laugh the right way. We laugh at all their jokes, even if they're not funny. We, we do things in order to be noticed because we're attracted to someone. Other times, we're motivated by wealth. If I have X number of dollars, then I'll be happy. If I have X number of dollars, then I'll be secure. If I have X number of dollars, I'll be able to buy that house. And so we're driven by wealth. Now, not all of those things are bad things. It can be good for us to want others to view us favorably. So long as we have that desire in order that others may view us favorably and open opportunities for the sharing of the gospel, for the glory of God. We, we can also say that fear can be a good thing. It's good for us to be afraid of falling off a cliff. It's also good for us to be afraid of falling into the hands of a holy God without Christ. It can be good for us to be motivated by attraction. When I first met Melanie, I tried to put myself where she was and, and put myself in places where she would notice me, and I think that worked out quite nicely for me. It's good for us as well sometimes to be motivated by wealth. We want to have enough wealth to put our kids through Christian education. We know that we need to have a roof over our heads and food for our families to eat. And we want to have wealth that we might bless others. We might further the kingdom of God through the, the giving to money, of, of, to money to missionaries and that sort of thing. It's, it's good for us also to not want to be chronically a burden to others if that's at all possible. But on the flip side, those things can also be bad. We can make very foolish decisions if we're perpetually motivated by what others will say about us, what others will think of us. Fear can be crippling if we let it dominate us. If we're constantly doing things that gain the attraction of others in order that they might be attracted to us, we will make wrecks of our lives. And the desire for wealth can very easily turn into greed, self-indulgence, and again wreck our lives. So what is it that motivates us? And what is it that motivates us as a church? As church members, even as church leaders? That, that's what I want us to consider. As we look at this account of Solomon here from 1 Kings 5, what was the foundation for Solomon's action? And how can we take the foundation for Solomon's action and apply it to our own lives in a way that causes us also to be wise as Solomon was wise. 
This seems on the surface to be a, a mundane record of an ordinary international business transaction between two kings in the ancient Near East. But it is, of course, more than that. Because kings is not just history. Kings is theological history. Kings is history with a point. And we can remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4. He says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So even these details, even these details about how it is that Solomon uh, obtains the building materials required for building the temple, even this seemingly mundane business transaction between one king and another that takes place nearly 3,000 years ago, even these details are important for us because they teach us. And they're meant to encourage us, and they're even meant to give us hope. And so we, we look into this particular transaction between Hiram and Solomon, and we see wisdom. Hiram was a king of, of Tyre, which his kingdom, uh, his kingdom reached all the way from the Lebanese highlands and down to the coast. And in Lebanon were these mammoth trees that could grow up to 90 feet tall. And so this was a very desirable resource. And so Hiram had been on good terms with David. In fact, the, the language here in the text isn't probably strong in it, but it says that he had been on friendly terms with David. The, the language actually is literally that Hiram loved David. And so this is a very friendly relationship between David and Hiram. And now that David has died and Solomon has become king, Hiram desires for that friendly relationship to continue. And so Hiram sends his diplomats to go and talk to Solomon to ensure that David's friendly policy towards Hiram would be continued by David's son. And, and this is this is important for Hiram, not just because he wants to have Solomon as his royal BFF, it's because this is an economically beneficial relationship for both parties. Hiram wants to continue access to Israel's resources, and in exchange he gives Israel resources from his own kingdom. This is a, a beneficial thing. And so he, he sends these emissaries, but the core of what we want to focus on is found in verses 2-7. to seven. That is Solomon's response to Hiram and just a brief part of Hiram's response back to Solomon. So let's read those verses again. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build the temple for the name of the Lord, his God, until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. So give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My men will work with yours, and I will pay you for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. And before we get into the meat of that, we should look at two things which we're not going to focus on specifically, which are still important for us to recognize. The first of which is that this is an eyewitness account. 
as we look through the archaeological information from empires and kingdoms of the day, this is standard practice. When a, a king embarked on a, a major building project, he would have recorded why he's embarking on it, how he prepared for it, how it was conducted, at what cost it was conducted, and how long it took to conduct it. And as we look at chapters 5 and 6 and 7, we'll see that Solomon follows that exact pattern. So when we look at this, we're seeing historically accurate, verifiable information of an eyewitness account of events of great significance for us, which occurred almost 3,000 years ago. The, the bottom line is we can trust our Bibles. But the second thing we see here as well is that this is, this is another example of God being faithful to His promise to Solomon. Recall again, God comes to Solomon, invites Solomon to ask for anything he wants, and then Solomon asks for wisdom. God responds to Solomon and says, I will give you wisdom. And this is another example of God's lavishly generous gift to Solomon. We've already seen that Solomon received in the argument between the two prostitutes over the living child and the dead child, that Solomon received wisdom as far as justice goes, judicial matters go. Then in the list of all of Solomon's officials, Solomon has wisdom in administration. Then we see Solomon has wisdom as well in, in his intellectual pursuits and in all of his proverbs and all of his writings and all of his songs. But now we see that God gives Solomon wisdom in international relations in matters of state. And he is so wise in these things that his wisdom causes Hiram, a pagan king, as we see in verse 7, to praise the God of Israel. Hiram says, Praise be to the Lord, that is the covenant God of Israel. Praise be to the Lord today, for He has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. And so we see that God is faithful to His promises. But then we get into the meat of Solomon's response to Hiram's emissaries to him. Solomon doesn't cut right to the chase. Solomon doesn't cut right to verse 6 and say, cut me some trees. Solomon first spends verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 giving Hiram an unsolicited biblical theological argument and case for the greatness of Israel's God. He first tells Hiram just how great and magnificent and powerful Israel's God before he gets to asking Hiram for the trees to build a temple. And so Solomon recounts a number of promises that God has kept for Hiram before he gets to his request. And the first of those promises is that God, when he made David king, the Lord had told David he was going to give him victory over all of his enemies. And Solomon recounts that through all of these wars of David, through all of these battles against enemies, whether internal or external, God had been faithful. God had protected David. God had given, Sol uh, God had given David victory. He'd given him protection. He'd given him everything that he needed. He had put all of his enemies under his feet exactly as he had said. That's the first promise. The second promise is that God had promised the Israelites a long time ago that they would have peace. The Israelites stood right on the edge of the Jordan River. Moses was about to die. They could smell the sweet scents of Canaan just wafting over the river. And God makes them pause, and He gives to Moses the law a second time. Deuteronomy, second law. And in that law, in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, <clears throat> we read this. You will cross the Jordan 
and settle in the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you. God had promised peace from all enemies. And now Solomon says that peace has come. And God had promised then also that he was going to choose a place for his name to dwell, that others might bring sacrifices to him. And Solomon says this is the place where God's people are meant to have a temple to bring resources, to bring sacrifice to their God. God has kept his promise a second time, but Solomon is not content just to recount two promises. He wants to recount three promises for Hiram. The third promise goes back to, Genesis, or goes back rather to 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. And in that promise, God had said to David, Your son is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So all of these promises form the background and the foundation for Solomon's request to Hiram to give him the timber to build the temple. And so after giving all those promises, then we read in verse 6, so give orders. In other words, God has protected, God has provided, God has been faithful, God has kept His Word, so cut me some trees and let's build us a temple. Do you see the pattern? Promise leads to action. God's promises and His faithfulness to His promises lead His people into action as a response to His promises. What motivates us as church members? Perhaps for some of us, it's a sense of obligation. I catch this whiff sometimes off of guys who are nominated for office. Yeah, ask them, you invite them to serve. Well, I guess I should. I don't have any reason not to, and it's probably my turn. People give like that, too. I don't particularly really want to give, especially not generously. But the Lord says I should so I guess I will. Sometimes obligation leads us into a perpetual low-level sense of guilt. We recognize that we've gone a day or a week or a month without any serious time in prayer, so we just kind of live in the guilt. Other times we recognize that opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel with others passes us by again and again and again, and we feel like we should be doing something about it, but we don't, and so we just kind of live again in this perpetual sense of guilt. Sometimes obligation motivates us. Sometimes ambition, selfish ambition, motivates us. We have a desire to exert our will on others, and so we simply use the church as a medium or a means by which we can exert our will on others. Sometimes other sinful motives come into play. Who can forget the Lord's condemnation of the Pharisees who did all the religious acts for the sole purpose of being seen by others who would view their supposed spiritual superiority and revel in the righteousness of these Pharisees who inwardly were wasting away. We can have all kinds of wretched things that motivate us as church members to serve the Lord. But what should motivate us? 
what should drive us and move us into action as church members? Well, it should be the promises of God. The promises of God should be what move us and motivate us into faithful action to God and in His church. Because it's worth it. It's worth it to obey God. It's worth it to serve God. It's worth it to be a disciple. And it's not just that your pastor says it's worth it. It's that God says it's worth it. We read from the very end of Paul's life, his last letter he's writing from prison, about to be killed. He says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So why is it worth it to persevere in faithfulness? And why is it worth it to act in righteousness? And why is it worth it to obey the instructions of God? And why is it worth it to follow Christ? Because God says it's worth it. Because if you are faithful, at the end of your life, the Son of God Himself crowns your head. Do you want the Son of God Himself to crown your head? I do. Do you dare believe that what the Scripture says is true, that at the end of a faithful saint's life, Jesus, the judge of all the earth, crowns the head of the righteous. Do you dare believe that? I do. And I dare believe it not because it sounds believable. What am I that God should crown my head? I believe it because God says it. And that makes me move. Not out of obligation, but out of a desire to own the promise that God has made me. And why should we clean up houses and hand out flyers and parades and serve at pass, invite people into our small groups and do all the monotonous, rigorous work of planting a church? Why should we share the gospel with our friends and our family and our neighbors? Because Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That Jesus paints the picture of the church like a battering ram. And Jesus pushes the battering ram right up against the gates of hell. And he knocks the gates in. And Jesus and all of his church go flooding into the darkness of hell's dominion the world. And begin plundering hell of lost sinners. Plundering hell of all of God's elect that he is going to bring out of lostness and into foundness, out of darkness and into life, uh, into light, and out of death and into life. That God promises that his church is the means by which he is going to go into the realm of darkness, into the reign of Satan, and bring his people out, making for himself a people more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Why go through the work of serving the church? Because Jesus promises he will build his church. And he will build his church with his church. We can have confidence that what we do matters because God promises that what we do matters. The promise of Christ to build his church, not some lame sense of obligation, is what should drive us and move us and motivate us to serve in faithfulness. We take action. We move on the promises of God. That's how Solomon moved. 
We might rightly say the foundation of Solomon's temple wasn't stone cut out of quarries. The foundation of Solomon's temple was the Word and the promise of God. Why should we be Sunday school teachers and keep order in the midst of chaos? And why should we go through all the work that's required to prepare lessons? And why do we take care of all these children and teach them the Word? Because Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And children, why should you obey your parents? Because God promises that it's worth it. The Apostle Paul in the Ephesians 6, quoting from the Ten Commandments, says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We act in faithfulness because God promises that it's worth it. And why should some of you stop being lazy, half-hearted church members and get off your spiritual duff and start serving the church because God says it's worth it? This is what he says. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. No matter who you are, if you serve God, He will reward you. No matter how imperfect your service is, if you serve God, He will reward you. Isn't that good enough, isn't that good enough motivation to cease laziness and take up faithfulness? And why should we pray? Because God promises that prayer is effective. We can look at James, James 5. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Wisdom acts. And wisdom acts on the promise of God. I was thinking about this on Tuesday night. I was losing sleep over thinking about the message and thinking about all that I had studied on Tuesday about the passage. And I was thinking to myself, what does wisdom look like? What does true wisdom look like? Now, what does perfect wisdom look like? We'll come to that. But what does true wisdom look like? And specifically, what does true wisdom look like among us? I thought of a couple examples. And I didn't tell you I was going to use you as an example because I didn't want you to be proud or anxious. More likely the latter than the former. And after all, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about God's faithfulness. But the first thing that came into my mind was the Friday last fall before our first Sunday back in the sanctuary after the renovation. And it was, a, it was a, a hectic day. There was a lot to be done. There was all kinds of things to be picked up, things to be hung on the walls, things to be moved, things to be put away. We had to make sure the, the pulpit was just right in the middle so it wouldn't distract anybody. We had to arrange furniture. We had to do all kinds of little things. And my enduring memory of the day is Brian Blummer. Sorry, Brian wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> My enduring memory of the day is Brian Blummer with a vacuum strapped to his back, going back and forth across the pews, vacuuming, getting it ready so that on Sunday, when God's people came to worship the God of all the earth and the God of beauty, they might worship on clean pews. And why is that wise? Well, here's what the Word of God says about deacons. 
You know what the Word of God says? It says, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. That is, that loving the church is worth it. And the second example I thought of was when I go downstairs to pick up, <coughs> excuse me, pick up my children from Sunday school. It's a chaotic hallway. There are lots of children. There are Sunday school papers everywhere. There are kids escaping the rooms without telling their teachers to go and find their parents. There are suckers being handed out and kids trying to take more than one sucker. Unfortunately, my own children sometimes have been guilty of such a crime. But my enduring memory of going downstairs to pick up my children from Sunday school is that when I pick them up in the midst of all that chaos, there's Valerie and Julie Ritter smiling. Because they just taught the children another Bible story. They just planted the seed of the Word of God deep into those sponge-like brains that God gives our children. Just one more time. Do you know why that's worth it? This is what Jesus says. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Giving the Word, the living Word of the living God, is of even greater value than giving a cup of cold water. And those who give it will not lose their reward. Wisdom acts on the promises of God. Anybody can sit back and be an armchair quarterback and point out all the things that are going wrong with their finger without lifting a finger to fix anything. And anybody can take pot shots at those who are doing something without themselves doing anything. And anybody can get on a committee and gripe about what's going on without being any part of the solution. There are no promises in the Bible for those who grumble and fault find. There are only examples of warning. Like the example from Numbers 16 of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were excellent grumblers and fault finders. And when they grumbled and fault found with Moses and caused division among the people of God, God said, Moses, you go over there. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and your families go over there. And the earth opened the ground and swallowed them up. Scripture says they went down into the grave alive. No promises made to those who point fingers without lifting fingers. Wisdom acts. Foolishness complains. I remember one interesting story about the life and ministry of D.L. Moody. Famous evangelist. We're familiar with Moody Bible Institute named in his honor. One particular time, a, a woman comes up to him. She says, I don't like the way you do evangelism. He says, well, how do you do evangelism? She had the honesty to say, I don't. He said this, frankly, sometimes I don't like my way of doing, of doing evangelism, but I prefer my way of doing it to your way of not doing it. He wasn't perfect. He recognized he wasn't perfect. But you know, he trusted in a God who was perfect and who makes perfect promises and uses imperfect people to accomplish his, purpose, his perfect things. That is, that he was wise in trusting that God would indeed, as he promised, build his church and grow it to the very ends of the earth. True wisdom then finds its perfect form in Jesus. So we might ask ourselves, Jesus, the truly wise king, what motivated him? What motivated Jesus to action? Well, love. We'd be remiss if we didn't start with love. Paul says so in Galatians 2 and also in Ephesians, but Galatians 
He says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Love. But more than that, joy. Joy motivated Jesus to go to the cross. This is the same Jesus who sweat drops of blood in the garden thinking about the cross. This is the same Jesus who was betrayed by one of his best friends, his closest associates. This is the same Jesus who was scourged to within an inch of his life in Pilate's palace, who was too weak to carry his own cross to the death hill. This is the same Jesus who was crucified. This is the same Jesus who suffered the wrath of God against the sins of all of his people in a hellish death. This is the same Jesus who was going to die and be buried. And joy motivated him. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus acted on the promises of God. He trusted that when his father said he was going to raise him from the dead, he would indeed raise him from the dead. He trusted that it was right and best, that God's way is always best. He trusted that when he looked back after it was all over, he would be able to say with truth, I would do it all over again and I wouldn't change a thing. He trusted that God would make him joyful if he would be obedient all the way to the cross. God's promise motivated God's Son to go to the cross for us. The question is whether we are willing to give up our lazy, half-hearted, obligation, guilt, and ambitious, motivated lives in order to be promise-driven like Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and Jesus. And to trust that when God says he will use imperfect people for his perfect, perfect purposes to build his church, that he indeed will use you by his grace to accomplish his purposes. Are you willing to take God's word and take God at his word and act on God's word? There will be a cost. There will be a cost. The question is not whether there will be a cost or not. The question is, is the cost worth it? This is what Jesus says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. We just sang about that earlier. Take up my cross, lose my life, and follow you. That's a promise. It's a promise for death. It's a promise for life. It's a promise that following Jesus, no matter what the cost, is always worth it. God's promises are always true. And He's always faithful to keep His promise. The question, the only question is, are you willing to build your life on the truth of the promise of God? And that is not a question I can ask, answer for you. 
and so I'll let you think about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we, as your people, would be promise-driven people. That we would be moved, not out of a merely external sense of obligation, but moved from hearts that trust your word and believe that it is worth it to live and even if it comes to that, to die in obedience to your word. We pray that you would help us to believe that indeed we will not lose our reward. That indeed your kingdom does belong to children. To believe that our prayers are effective. To believe that you will crown the head of those who belong to Christ. To believe that it is worth it to take up our cross and follow your Son. Your Spirit is the only one who can convince us that it's worth it. And lead us to act on that conviction. So I pray that you would fill us from the greatest to the least, with your Spirit. Cause us to be motivated by your Word, to act for your glory. And we give you praise that you are a God who chooses to use imperfect people for your perfect purposes. We pray that we would repent of any laziness or half-heartedness, we would throw ourselves into being faithful and obeying you. And we think, even today, of the brevity of life. We see on the news this morning that six of our brothers and sisters in the Lord were slain by suicide bombers in Indonesia. Others have been seriously injured. That it's worth it to go to church. It's worth it to serve your church, even when it might cost us our lives. We know that those brothers and sisters sit around your throne, even now. So we pray that you would indeed impress upon us the brevity and the importance of this life. Cause us to see that it is worth it to serve you and to reap the eternal reward that you promise to those who follow you in faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.